Man, how about that? Um, so thankful for uh, the church that we get to be a part of. Um, my name's Spence. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy, and I wanted to take um, just a second with you and celebrate uh, for a second. You know, four years ago, some of you know it's your first weekend here. Um, we started Mercy Church four years ago this past Friday. Uh, so we're kind of in our fourth birthday celebration mode right now. Um, you know, we're growing just like a four year old, though. We're kind of clumsy, but we're growing and, and moving along and thankful for what the Lord is doing. Uh, but I recognize, even though some of you, it's your first week in here, some of you have been a little bit newer to our, our community here, um, man, the Lord has done, even though it's only four years, it's also the Lord has done some amazing things over the last four years uh, with us, and I believe uh, that that's just the start of what he has um, for Mercy Church. I want to take a second and kind of go out on a limb here, because we were, when we started, about 80 people in one room together, and now, just through the way the Lord has written our story, we're across um, two different locations and four services, so I don't know exactly how this is going to work, but if you were a part of those 80 people, if you were one of those 80 people that were on that launch team that got um, Mercy Church, you were kind of in there with us from the get-go, I want to take a second and let the others around you thank you for what you've done. Would you stand up if you would be so bold, if you're a part of that initial group? There's Charlie over there. There's Paul. There's Cliff. There we go. Look at there. Here's our crew. Yeah, would you guys thank them? Man. Thank you, guys. Y'all can be seated, man. Um, look at what the Lord has done among us. So good. So good. Um, so today is a, it's kind of an awesome day. We are in a series um, in the book of Acts, and we're in my, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And I'm so thrilled because another one of the signs of, of what we hope to see happen as a church, the Lord answer a prayer he has answered, and that is to bring others that we can, um, that we can come and join us and, and be a part of our preaching and teaching team here and our shepherding team here. Um, and one of those guys that the Lord has brought to Mercy Church, um, you know, um, have gotten to know if you've been here at Providence Road, is Joey Schwartz. Uh, Joey is serving as our campus director here at Mercy Providence Road. He is in the middle of the elder um, process, and we're going to be bringing him before the church, we believe, um, sometime in the near future to go through those next steps. Uh, so now currently serving as campus director. He and his wife, Kelly, have been here for a little over a year. It's like um, Ruth and you guys' story at Mercy Church kind of about the same amount of time with their little one-year-old. So we are thankful for him. He's going to be preaching for us this morning. Uh, and so I want you to welcome our campus director to the stage, Joey Schwartz. All right. Good morning. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning. So just about maybe 20 minutes ago, Everybody in here parked your car in the lot, and you got out the car, got your stuff together. If you have kids, it probably took a few minutes to get everyone in, and you walked through the doors. And what I want to start this morning is to ask you, what did you expect? What did you expect when you walked in the door this morning? You see, when I grew up in church, I, I grew up uh, in kind of a more formal church, so what I expected was to walk in and uh, be quiet, and to sit, and then kneel, and stand, and, and listen to about a 15-minute sermon, and do some more formal music, and then 
We went from about as formal as it gets to about as informal as it gets. And I went to a non-denominational church and I walked in and I saw someone raise their hand and I thought they had a question and they were just praising the Lord. It took me a little while to get used to it, but over time I got used to a, a good sermon, some great music, an encouraging, uplifting time. So how about you? When you came in this morning, what did you expect? See, I don't know where you're at this morning, but for me, for years and years and years, 17 years to be exact, I was expecting to hear about God. I was expecting to sing about God. I was expected to be around people who believed in God, but it wasn't until the Lord saved me that I began to expect God. And so what we're going to look at this morning is a passage at the end of Acts 2, and it's a classic passage about the early church, and it shows that this church, they expected to be filled with the power of God when they gathered. This early church, they expected to encounter God's presence. This early church, they expected to come together and they expected to give themselves up for the rest of the believers. When they came together, they expected to encounter the grace of God and be nourished and filled with him. When they came together, they expected God. But when we read this passage, we can make a mistake. We can think that this group was a, a bunch of religious all-stars who said, you know what, how about let's get together and let's have a really intense community, a really intense devotion to the Lord. I've got an idea. How about let's gather together for devotion and for singing, for praise, that it was their idea. Because if we can believe that, then we're off the hook. That was a first century thing with a really devoted group of people. But if you read this passage in Acts 2, in its context of Acts 1 and 2, what you'll see is that this community, the strength, its power, its expectation had nothing to do with them. In Acts 1, Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, gathers with his disciples and he promises them the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, as they're seeking the Lord and praying, the promise to, that Jesus gave to his disciples is fulfilled, and they receive power from the Holy Spirit. And they speak in tongues, and a crowd gathers, and Peter, by what power? By the power of the Spirit, preaches the word. And as he's preaching, they're cut to the heart by the power of the Spirit. And then Peter responds and he says, repent, believe in the gospel. You will receive the forgiveness of sins and what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And it says that the Lord added 3,000 in that day. And that leads into our picture of the church that we're about to read. You see, this church was not just a group of intense religious individuals. It wasn't just for that first century context. No, if it was by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we're not off the hook. Because the same Holy Spirit is available to us today. Not only are we not off the hook, better, we have a great opportunity. We have a great opportunity to receive the same power. So what I want to talk about over the next few minutes together, several minutes together, is I want to talk about the Spirit-filled church. 
the Spirit-filled church. I want to show you four features of the Spirit-filled church. And what I want to encourage you to do is to come in and expect God to show you what he desires for your life. No matter if you're religious, no matter if this is your first time in church in a while, what we're going to see is that this didn't have to do with their religion. It had to do with the Holy Spirit coming by grace. So let's begin. We're in Acts chapter 2. Verse 42 is where we'll begin. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves. This group of spirit-filled believers come together, and the first thing they do is they devote themselves. Now let's start with that word devoted. All right, I think that this word has maybe been a little diluted in its meaning today, right? Uh, I think probably ever since we decided to call little bite-sized daily readings of scripture or encouragement devotionals, that we've kind of lost a little bit of what devotion means. See, in, in the Greek, this word is proskartereo. Proskartereo. Sounds good to say, proskar toreo. And what it means in the Greek is to continue steadfastly in with intense effort, to give constant attention to, to give constant attention to. So if you think about it, a devoted football fan watches the game on Sundays. Every Sunday, a devoted football fan is going to watch the game on Sundays. A proskar toreo fan is going to show up first in line on Sundays wearing face paint, and he's not going to take it off Monday through Saturday. That's a Proskar Toreo fan. You see, we have a word that's much closer to Proskar Toreo. Obsessed. Obsessed. That's much more like it. They were obsessed with the apostles' teaching, with the fellowship, with the breaking of bread, with the prayers. It was distinguishable in their lives. Anyone could look at them and say, that person's obsessed. It characterizes their life. So let's begin with that first part. They were obsessed with the apostles' teaching. You see, in all these things, what they're going to be obsessed with, they're going to be obsessed with the presence of God. They're going to be obsessed with God's presence, but it's through the apostles' teaching. Now, what is meant here by the apostles' teaching? So if you look back, Luke is the author of both the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. And in Luke 24, Jesus is raised from the dead, and he's talking to his disciples about himself. And what it says in Luke 24 is that he interpreted to them all the things in the scripture concerning himself. And then later in Luke 24, it says that Jesus, just in a moment, this risen Christ, as he's with his disciples, it says that he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. So you see, what they were, what they were doing was they were looking at the scriptures through the apostles' teaching and seeing Christ in everything. They had just repented of their sins. They had just received forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit. And now they were looking at these scriptures. These Jewish believers were looking at the scriptures and saying, I see Christ. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit. So they may have read Abraham and thought that Abraham was all about Abraham. But then they looked back on Genesis 12 and said, 
Oh, all this time, the promise to Abraham was pointing to his offspring that was going to be fulfilled in Christ, and Christ was going to be the promised heir that blesses all the nations. They had read David and said, David's all about David. He's the king of Israel. And then they read it again and said, wait, Christ is the son of David, the one who takes up the throne of the kingdom and rules forever and ever in a dominion that has no end. They looked at the promise of the new covenant in the prophets about God giving them a new heart through a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And they thought, this is Christ all over. He's the lamb that took on our sins. He's the one that bore our iniquities and by him fulfilled the promise of Ezekiel 36 that we would be given a new heart and a new spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit's presence. When we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, it leads us to an obsession with the Holy Spirit's book. The Holy Spirit's presence leads to an obsession with the Holy Spirit's book. Wherever he shows up, he's going to lead you to his voice in the scriptures, and he's going to give you a hunger, a desire to read his word. What was once a dust collector, what was once just a a nice-looking book covered in leather sitting on your shelf becomes life, becomes food, becomes joy, becomes a meeting with your greatest love. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. He makes us obsessed with the apostles' teaching. Next comes the fellowship. The fellowship and the breaking of bread. Now, what Luke is going to do in a bit is explain what this means to us in further detail. He's going to tell us all about what the uh, fellowship and the breaking of bread means. So we're going to cover this back uh, in, a, in just a few minutes. But what we need to touch on right now is that fellowship, it means sharing, sharing all things. And then the breaking of bread was a, a common meal that culminated in the Lord's Supper. And that emphasized their togetherness. They were together. They shared all things and they were together. You see, God will never leave, let, allow us to just take an isolated view of Christianity like we're monks. Like we have a personal devotion to God and just me and Jesus, and I just love him, so I don't need anyone else. That's never the way it was meant to be. We were always meant to be a member of the body. Now, we need the head, and if the head isn't there, we're going to be running around like a chicken without a head, right? But we need the body, lest we be an elbow floating in the air without anything to do. We need the body of Christ, and we're going to get back to that in a bit. And then next, after the fellowship and the breaking of bread, they were obsessed with the prayers. They were obsessed with the prayers. Prayer, if you remember, was the way that they had actually received the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised them, hey, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, and I will send you the promise. Now, when he said, wait, they could have done anything. They could have played video games. They could have sat back and, you know, watched some TV. To me, in in my context, waiting means just about anything. Just wait, kill the time. But no, they took waiting to mean pray. Waiting means pray. Don't sit back, eagerly seek the promise that I've given to you. Wait. And they earnestly desired the promise. They gave themselves to prayer, and the Lord gave them the answer. He filled with them with the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
And they continued, they continued, they continued to devote themselves to prayer. They didn't say, all right, we're good. We got the Holy Spirit, so we don't need to go back to prayer. No, what they had experienced of receiving God's power through prayer, they continued to repeat again and again and again. They learned that God's power comes through prayer, to depend on him, to be weak before him. God rewards that with his power. So all throughout the book of Acts, if you read through Acts, you're going to see it come up time and time and time again. They were praying, they were praying, and they gave themselves to prayer, and they devoted themselves to prayer. And the question, is this for us an obsession with prayer? Do we really need to be obsessed? Well, think of some of the commands to all new covenant believers. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Romans 12.12, be constant in prayer. Always. That sounds like obsession to me. If I were to look at someone who's ceaselessly praying, always praying, doesn't stop praying, I'm going to say that person's obsessed with prayer. Seems like that's the expectation. So why does that not happen? See, I think the believers in the early church, they were obsessed because they were desperate. They were obsessed because they were desperate. They knew they had a mission they could not accomplish. They knew they still had sin that they needed to rid themselves of. And even if everything else in the world was good and fine, they were desperate for God's presence. They said, as long as he's there and I'm here, I'm going to come to prayer because I want to be with my greatest love. They were desperate. And now in our day, you can see why there's an issue when we only come to God in prayer during crisis. When we only come when the blue lights are behind us. We only come to prayer when the kind of bills and finances are getting tight. We only come to prayer when we have relational conflict that sounds the alarm, but otherwise, we're not desperate. And what that might show is that our priority is not God's presence and God's mission, but comfort. Because whenever comfort's disrupted, that's when we pray. I'm not desperate for you, God. I'm desperate, desperate for comfort. So whatever is making me uncomfortable, please, I'm coming to you right now. Fix it. Whereas desperate, constant prayer that doesn't end, that makes us desperate all the time. Because we could be in good times, we could be in bad. We could be struggling, or we could be just floating in the clouds. And yet at all times we say, I'm desperate for your mission, which I can't accomplish, and for your presence, which I need you right now to do. I need to be in your presence. So you can tell a lot about someone, especially in this context, Ask them what you can pray for them. And if they say, and I don't, I don't say this out just so you can kind of trap them, I'm just saying. <laughs> Ask them what you can pray for them. If they say, or if you have been saying, you know what, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Yeah, just pray for, pray for someone else, pray for the world. You ask them what they pray for, and they say they're good, you know they're not desperate. And, and lest we think that this is just them, when we call for people to come up for prayer and you see someone come up, what do you think about them? That person must be desperate. Gosh, that, that person, they've got it bad, especially if they're willing to do that out in front of everybody. That person must be desperate. Now, what would it look like? What would it look like for all of us to be desperate at all times? 
for his presence, for power, for his mission. I would say someone would come in and we call up for prayer and everyone comes up. Because either I want to pray to God right now, I wouldn't rather do anything else, or I need something to pray for. I need something prayed for me because I just want to be with him. I want to be more like him. I want more power for ministry. And an outsider comes in and they say, gosh, those people must be desperate. And we say, yes. Yes, we are. We are desperate. We have a mission we can't accomplish alone. And we want to be in the presence of God desperately. Oh, for the day where mercy church prayer team would be a redundant phrase where everyone is on the prayer team. You see someone who has a need for prayer, I'll pray for them. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pray for them right now, and I'm going to believe that God is going to work. See, what the Spirit does, he creates a people who are obsessed with the presence of God. I want to hear his voice. I want to come to him in prayer. So with each of these marks, I want to give you a diagnostic question, something to consider for yourself if you want to write these down. Here's my question for you. Compared to your other pursuits, is your pursuit of God's presence obsessive or relatively normal? Compared to all your other pursuits, is your pursuit of God's presence obsessive or relatively normal? You say, you can have many pursuits. I'm not saying you're not going to have pursuits. If you want to keep a job, you're going to need some pursuits. You're going to need to do something, right? You can have many pursuits, but you can only have one obsession. Only one thing can take the realm of obsession in your life. And Jesus is the only obsession that will not corrupt you, but will renew you. You cannot be too much obsessed with Jesus. No matter how the world wants you to calm down, don't calm down. Get fired up for Jesus because that will only make you new, renewed person. Be the person that God wants you to be. To be obsessed with Jesus will not corrupt, but will renew. Is that your kind of pursuit of Jesus. All right, let's move on. That's verse 42. On to verse 43. What was the overflow of this obsession? Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. See, these two things are woven together. There were wonders and signs before them, and there was all. So let's, let's begin with the wonders and signs. So the, the term signs and wonders, you've probably heard of that, that actually originated with the Exodus, where God said that I'm going to display my signs and wonders in Egypt so that they will know I'm the Lord. And all throughout the scripture, signs and wonders is associated with the Exodus event, where God led his people Israel out of Egypt until the new covenant where Jesus comes to display signs and wonders. And he brings a new era where his signs and wonders are testifying to his power. And in this context, what it's talking about is that Jesus gave his apostles signs and wonders. What I mean by that is they did things that were absolutely impossible to do apart from the intervening power of God. And they did them in order to demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel. So the apostles performed signs and wonders, and these were confirming evidence of the gospel as it was spreading. Now, the question we have here is, were these signs and wonders just for the apostles, or should we have any expectation that God may do something like that here and now? 
So let's look at the evidence. As we go to Acts chapter 5, it's going to continue to say that the apostles are working signs and wonders. They're demonstrating the truthfulness of the gospel. But then you go to Acts 6. And in Acts 6, Stephen, not an apostle, but a deacon, begins to perform signs and wonders to confirm the gospel. Later in Acts 8, Philip, another deacon, not an apostle, begins to perform signs and wonders to confirm, uh, to confirm the gospel as it's spreading. Now, later on, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul didn't say, does he who worked miracles do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says, does he who continues to work miracles do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then later on in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, Paul says that each, uh, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, spiritual gifts. And among these spiritual gifts, he uh, lists miraculous signs like prophecy, like tongues and the interpretation of tongues and miracles. And Paul didn't say, hey, just kidding. That was just for the apostles, but you church, don't worry about it. No, he actually instructs the opposite. He says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So the expectation in the scriptures is that these would continue because, listen, the power was never in the apostles. Now they were set apart, absolutely set apart to be the first initial witnesses and to guide the church into truth, especially in the apostles' teaching and the completion of the New Testament canon, which is our final authoritative word. Absolutely. But remember, the power never was in the apostles. The power was in the Holy Spirit. And he continues to move in the same ways that he did. Well, what about after? All the scriptures are written during the apostolic age. Well, zoom forward about 120 years in the year 180, Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. So Irenaeus is a, a second generation disciple after John. And this is what Irenaeus says. For some disciples do certainly and truly drive out devils. Others have foreknowledge of things to come. They see visions and utter prophetic expressions. Others still heal the sick by laying their hands upon them and they are made whole. In like manner, we also hear uh, many brethren in the church who profess prophetic gifts and who through the Spirit speak all kinds of languages and bring to light for the general benefit the hidden things of men and declare the mysteries of God. Here's what I'm saying. A hundred years after the, the apostles died, the last of the apostles died, these things are continuing to move forward. They're continuing to go. The signs and wonders are happening in the church under the authority of the apostolic word. The power is continuing, and what that produces, what that produces is all. You see, there's two ways of seeing how God's power is unleashed. Some see it like a ripple effect. There was a big explosion 2,000 years ago, and now we, if we're lucky, we can get some of the ripples 2,000 years later. And the other ways of seeing the power of the Holy Spirit given to the church is a chain reaction. One explosion begets another explosion, begets another explosion down the centuries, down discipleship until the last of the explosions is just as explosive as the first. It's not a ripple effect, it's a chain reaction and that creates all. That creates all. See, this church was filled with God's power. 
They were filled with God's power and they were in awe. And really, this word is the word we get our English word phobia from. All should really be fear. All should really be fear. Why would the disciples fear God? Why would they shake and tremble at God? Well, you look at Mark chapter 4, verse 41. Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and there's a raging storm that makes them afraid. They're saying, our lives are about to end. And Jesus wakes up from a nap and says, stop. And the waves calm and the storm is silenced. And what did it say of the disciples? It says they were filled with great fear. It says they were filled with great fear. See, what if coming out of this room walked in a big, hungry lion on the stage? I'm not talking about like Charlotte Zoo lion that's been like sedated. I'm talking about Nat Geo lion, like in front of a gazelle, a huge lion five feet in front of you and just standing right here. Now I know, I don't know what, how we'd react. Some of you guys would bolt out. Some of you guys would be like, I kind of want to touch. Um, but I know that no one in here would be saying, gosh, I wonder what they're thinking about what I'm wearing right now. Gosh, if, okay, if I go like this, or like this, or like this, or like this. Would that, what are they going to think about how I'm doing that? Gosh, if I, if I kind of do a little bit of a dance in front of the lion, what are they going to be thinking? No, they're all going to be looking at the lion. They're going to be in awe at the big, hungry lion in front of them. Guys, when we gather, the lion of the tribe of Judah is among us. He's among us. And when we see his glory, the one who defeated death, the one who let out his ferocious power upon Satan, yes, we love him, but we tremble in his presence. And we stop thinking about what other people are thinking about us. We're in awe of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Are you hungry for this? Do you fear God in this way? Is there an expectation of God? If God showed up in this room right now, would you be surprised? So here's what I want to ask you here. Here's what I want to ask you here. Is your worship, is your worship, is it characterized more by fearful expectation? Is it characterized more by fearful expectation or a casual routine that's under your control? Is your worship characterized by a fearful expectation of God's power or a casual routine under your control? Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying break your routines. Be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Be devoted to the prayers. Day in, day out, do it at the same time in the same way if you want. It's about the way you come into it. Is it casual? Is it under your control? Or when you gather, is there a fearful expectation? God may move now like he did. The apostles, you see, they said, if God did that, they saw the resurrection. They said, if God did that, surely he can do this now. And we have the same confidence. If God raised me from the dead, if he defeated my sin, if he saved me, surely he can pour out his power. Surely he can. They were filled with God's power. Let's move on. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Remember, they weren't just obsessed with God's presence and the prayers as if they were isolated monks. No, they were obsessed with fellowship. What does it mean to be obsessed with one another in a way that's healthy? <laughs> right? Because if we, we take that too far, that can get out of hand. What does God mean when he says, proskar tereo, the fellowship? I think what we see here in this passage is two things. Two things. They were together and they had all things in common. They were together and they had all things in common. The third feature of a spirit-filled church is they were sold out for God's people. They were sold out for God's people, literally. They sold their time, their place, and being together, they sold their possessions and having all things in common. They had all things in common. So let's talk about that first part. They were together. You guys know from the get-go that this, all of this rubs against the way we do life in America. We know this. All of this kind of rubs against how we uh, take an, our individualized posture toward our time, our home, our possessions. So what does this mean for us that they were all together? Well, remember the fellowship was listed in the means of God's grace in verse 42. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, it's listed among the means of God's grace. And this is the way the scripture handles us gathering together. It's not seen as an optional add to the Christian life. It's not seen as a, ah, I could meet with them or I could not. Hebrews 3 says, continue to exhort one another every day, every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then Hebrews 10 says, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. See, if we, uh, let me say this. Having a good understanding of how often we should meet together is connected to our understanding of our sin. If we know how deceitful our sin is, we'll desperately want to meet with a brother and sister in Christ who can say, don't be deceived. But if we think we're good, I can handle it on my own. The gathering of the saints seems much less essential. So they said, I need grace because when I'm weak, this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when I'm weak, the word of my brother and sister is stronger than the word of my own heart. When I doubt God's goodness, when I doubt that he's with me, and my brother and sister saying, brother, don't, do not fear, do not be ashamed. He said he will never leave you nor forsake you. That comes into my weary heart and gives me a cold drink of refreshment. To the degree we see, we, we see and grasp that we need that, that'll make us want to meet together. But here's what this is going to require, because I know we're all in different life situations, okay? It's going to require us to move from a guest mindset toward one another and toward a family mindset. A guest mindset to a family mindset. Here's what I mean. We need to stop seeing the gathering of the saints and doing life together and eating meals as an event and more just something that we do because we're God's people. Now, in order to do that, listen, your house does not have to look like Chip and JoJo. You don't have to vacuum, you don't have to clean up. Now, guys, spray that for breeze. That's still an act of love toward the body of Christ, but you do not, you don't have to clean up, you don't have to serve seven layer lasagna, a frozen pizza will do. 
But we need to start seeing just welcoming the body of Christ in together, just welcoming people in our lives, because I know none of us can add too many more calendar blocks into our schedule. It's already full. Add people into your calendar blocks. Add people into what you're doing, and that's the only way we're going to be able to receive this daily grace toward one another. So they were together, and then they had all things in common. What we see from this is that they were selling their possessions, distributing the proceeds to any who had need. Any who had need. So very practically, what this looked like is, all right, Carolina Grace, you know, she needs $15. Okay, I have this, I don't know, football that costs $15. I'm going to sell this, and I'm going to give her the $15. Or much more extreme, what they were actually doing is, I have a brother or sister who needs $10,000, and I got a field in South Carolina that I'm going to sell for $10,000 and give the proceeds to them. Now, it says they were selling. All of them were selling their proceeds, distributing the proceeds. Now, is this talking about a certain kind of everyone had no possessions? Everyone had no possessions. No, it's not talking about that because the way we know that, we're not watering down the text by saying that. The way we know that is because later on in the book of Acts, they're meeting in each other's homes. So if they didn't have homes to meet in, it'd be like they're meeting in Rufus's home. Well, Rufus, if he sold his home, it'd no longer be Rufus's home. So they still had possessions, but here's what it, it looked like. They had everything on the table. Everything was on the table to say, hey, if, if you need it, if you have a need, I'm not even going to think twice about it. Because in the body of Christ, there should be no needs. It's all on the table in case anyone has needs. Now, why does this rub up against us? Why is this so tough for us? So we're not in this stage yet with um, Ruthie, but I've heard as soon as she starts talking, a word's going to come out of her mouth. It comes out of every kid, mine, mine. And I'm not looking forward to that, but she's doing it effectually right now. She's just taking whatever she wants. She's doing it with her actions, but mine, mine. And, and parents, you guys know, you'll, you'll correct them and say, no, well, technically that's not yours. I bought that for you. It kind of belongs to me. I can do with it what I want to, so that's not really right. And after your great debate, your wonderful argument that you gave your three-year-old, they still the next time will say, mine. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we can, uh, we can all agree that we might stop saying mine but we still are saying it inside as we grow up. And whenever the Lord pushes on a certain possession, pushes, you know, that, that, that constant savings account, that constant inflow of savings, and the Lord says, hey, I think you should give that. I think you should give that to someone in need. There's that, that internal mine, that internal mine. And we know that arguing with ourselves and saying, you know, it's not yours, it's the Lord, it's tough. Because when push comes to shove, it's tough to give what we feel like is mine. And yet, here's what we need to see from the scriptures. Why was it that this is such a huge feature of the early church? That they're giving, they're selling, they're giving up what belongs to them. It's because in this, they're reflecting Christ. They're reflecting Christ. He said this is the way they were going to love. A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. So here's what we need to see. You need, in order to develop this kind of generosity, and I need this, you need to see the Savior who looked at heaven and earth and said, mine. 
and came down to earth among sinners and said, mine. And came uh, to the Father's will and said, mine. And he looked at his own life and he said, mine. And he looked at Golgotha and he said, mine, I created this. And he looked at the wood of the cross and he said, mine. And yet Jesus looked at all of these things, having heaven and earth as his possession. And he says, for the glory of the Father, I give all that is mine so that I can be yours and you can be mine. And when we see that, you see, we don't stop saying mine. We just change what we're talking about. We say, heaven and earth are mine in Christ Jesus. We say the Savior of the world is mine. Future glory, inheritance forever and ever in Christ are mine. Joy unspeakable, glory beyond comparison are mine in Christ Jesus. And because all of these things are mine, this can be yours. This can be yours. We start to get excited about giving. See, there's, a di- there's two ways of giving. I said you got to put all everything on the table, but there's a, different, there's a difference between putting it on the table and saying, God, it's on the table, and putting it on the table and say, who's next? Who can I give to? Here's what I want to ask you. Are you on the hunt for ways to give, or do you wait for needs to come to you? I'm talking about your spiritual gifts. I'm talking about the money and possessions God's given you. When the believers gathered, they were expecting, I'm showing up to give. I'm not just going to come in and out. Someone's going to have a need, a spiritual need, a physical need, a material need that I can, I can step in and solve because I have the Holy Spirit. I have this stewardship that I can give for others. Are you on the hunt for ways to give or do you wait for needs to come to you? Let's close out with the end of verse 46. This people received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The last feature of a spirit-filled church is that they are marked by God's favor. They're marked by God's favor. That word favor, it's a, it's a synonym for grace. It means the same. They were marked by God's favor. See, they weren't walking around sad and sackcloth and ashes and say, oh, we don't have our possessions anymore. They were glad. There was not only a fear in the presence of the Lion of Judah, there was joy in his presence because, yes, he is ferocious, but he let out his ferocious power on sin and Satan and not on us. And so we can have fear, but we can also have joy in his presence. The Lord gave them favor with the people. The Lord gave them favor with himself. And what this ended up turning to was that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were a compelling, attractive community. They drew people in because of this gladness of heart. The people said, you don't have the things that typically make people happy. You don't have position. You don't have things. All your stuff is gone, and yet you're happy. i got to have what you have because these things that I thought were making me happy are not. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I tried whole whole 30 once. I tried whole 30 and I, I knew I would need to be a little bit obsessed. It takes obsession to see a tortilla and choose kale. I would need to be constantly on the lookout. I would need to be passionate and obsessed. I need to I need to give everything I had in order to do it. And yet I'll tell you guys, I was miserable. <laughs> yes. I was miserable. Because every day the promise of cleansing from the you know, genetically engineered food, aka everything that tastes good, was at the end of the 30 days. And this created in me, yes, an intensity and an obsession, but it made me miserable. I could not eat kale one more time. So guys, my whole 30 became a whole 14. I made it 14 days. See, this spirit-filled church, it causes obsession with God's presence. It causes us to sell everything we have. It causes us to come and be filled with God's power, but it doesn't make us miserable. It makes us glad. It gives us contagious joy, contagious generosity, because the cleansing doesn't come at the end of the devotion, the obsession. The cleansing comes at the beginning. It is being one with Christ, being known by him, being brought together that makes us follow him with such fervor. So here's what I want to ask you. Are you walking in the kind of spirit-filled joy you'd want others to get in on? Are you walking in the kind of spirit-filled joy that you'd want others to get on? Because that's what was happening. They were glad and generous, sharing everything. And people around the community said, I need to have what you have. And then they discovered Christ. They discovered that everything was rooted in the glory and the honor and the praise of Christ. All right, let me wrap things up here. Everyone in here probably is thinking similar things right now. I know I am as I look at this passage. The first is, I really want this. I really want this. I hope you do. I hope you're not, if this isn't your experience, if you're not walking in this, I hope that you long for this, that you want this. Because this is, to be filled with God's power, to be near to God, to be a part of his people in this way, this is joy. I hope you want this. But you're probably also feeling, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. That'd be also a really good thing because this is beyond your power or mine. But remember, this is a good thing. Acts 1, Jesus sent them out. and He didn't say, you're going to be my witnesses. Now go give it your best shot. Go do everything you can. No, he said, you will be my witnesses, but wait for power. And later we'll see that his power is made perfect, not in our strength, not in our religion. His power is made perfect in weakness. Now we have to move on beyond that because not just I really want this, I cannot do this, but I believe he can do this. I believe he can do this. Yes, if, if God could raise the dead, if he raised Jesus from the dead, if he brought me to himself, surely he can give me this kind of obsession with his presence, this power, this community, this favor that tr- attracts the community. Surely he can do this. But I would venture to guess if you've been coming to church for a while, all of you have already said these three things, and you all agree to it, right? We have to move on to the fourth. I believe he wants to do this in me. 
Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom? That he wants to know you. He wants to give you power. He wants to reward you with the joy of his presence. See, a lot of us, most of us, we believe he can. Of course, he's God. But do you believe he wants to do this in you? That he wants to give you power. That he wants to be with you always and forever. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace for your beauty. God, I pray that we would all take a step forward into knowing and loving you in this way. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that this early church was not a group of just superior religious individuals, but it was a people who had received the grace of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that you would move among us, that you would do what you did in that day here and now. And we praise you for what we've seen already. So many of these things that we've talked about are happening all across Mercy Church. So we just pray for more. God, I pray that everyone, everyone would step into this, step into the joy of the Lord. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.